Hope you will take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10. As you turn there, this morning we are going to be considering a passage of Scripture that has reminded me of how slow we are to learn and how quick we are to forget. Doesn't this describe us? Slow to learn, quick to forget. And sadly, I think it's especially true when it comes to the way we think about God, how we relate to him. I'm afraid that when it comes to the way we relate to God, how we think about him, how we think about ourselves, and even as we consider what he has called us to, often we are slow to learn and quick to forget. And I know this is true in part because I've been a Christian for a long time and I have experienced it myself. I've seen it in those around me. We go to God's word and for a while we understand, we see him so clearly, but it doesn't take long before we forget again. We have a hard time getting this proper understanding of God and we are prone to forgetfulness and we, as a result, start thinking and living in ways that don't honor God. We think too much of ourselves. We think too little of him. And our lives and our actions follow, don't they? Well, this morning as we come back to Mark chapter 10, we're coming to a passage about the disciples and quite frankly, it is a familiar story. It's a story about how the disciples are thinking again too highly of themselves. They've misunderstood what Jesus has called them to. And yet again, Jesus corrects them. He teaches them again that following him is not all about them. That being a follower of his is about humility and servanthood. Does this sound familiar? I want to see you shaking your heads because we have just been hitting this theme over and over and over. Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, now Mark chapter 10. It just keeps coming up over and over again. Jesus tells his disciples why he's come and what he's called them to. And yet here we are again and they think way too much of themselves. They see their relationship with Jesus as an opportunity for position, for status, for power. They're missing the fact that Jesus has called them to give themselves away. So again, we have a story where the disciples are struggling with pride and Jesus is teaching them the way of humility. As I worked on it, it sounded so familiar and I gave it a title, The Greatness of Humility, and then I realized we already had that message about six weeks ago. So the title of this message is Another Message on the Greatness of Humility, and I think we need it because we are slow to learn, and we are quick to forget. If I thought we had all mastered it from last time, we would have just moved on. But I think God and his providence knew that we wouldn't, so he put it again in chapter 10, even though we just heard it in chapter 8. The disciples, like us, struggled. Their example of struggle is instructive for us. And while we may be tempted to shake our heads at the disciples because once again they think too much of themselves and they've misunderstood the plan of God, we need to be reminded that we are much like them. So again, we're going to hear the call of Jesus to servanthood. 
and to be reminded that the path to greatness in the kingdom of God is a way of humble service. So if you have your Bibles open, we're going to be in verses 35 through 45 of Mark 10. I'll read them for us, and then we will consider God's word together. Hear the word of God. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me, for me to do? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And then when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John and Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. It's our prayer that God would add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. If you were with us last week, then you may remember, we considered this passage where for the third time, Jesus told his disciples in, in very plain language that he was on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to rise. And if you've been with us or if you've read much of the, the teachings of Jesus, you know that often he speaks in metaphor, often he speaks in imagery. That's not what he did here. He spoke plainly. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. He says it clearly, but what we see is that even still the disciples are slow to understand, slow to learn. No matter how much he explains to them about the cross, they continue to hold on to the reality that, that Jesus is Messiah, that he has come to establish his kingdom, that he's going to rule and he's going to reign. And they're not wrong. He is the Messiah. He is going to rule and reign. But they continue to struggle with this idea that before that, he must suffer and he must die. They don't understand that the path to exaltation goes through the cross. But we've heard it, haven't we? Three times we've seen it recorded in Mark that Jesus tells them so plainly what's going to happen. And yet they, they just don't seem to understand. And we may be tempted to shake our heads at them at their slowness to learn, but can I keep reminding us this morning? We are more like them than we care to admit. Jesus tells us the way is hard, and yet we keep looking for the easier path. We are slow to learn and quick to forget. Here are the disciples on their way to Jerusalem. They have heard what Jesus has said, but they don't understand. They have their mind fixed on Jesus as king. And more than that, they have their eyes fixed on what that means for them. 
So we get this conversation that we just read, starting in verse 35. James and John, sons of thunder, these two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, they come up to Jesus. Can you imagine saying this to Christ? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It sounds to you like an unbelievably bold thing to say to the face of Christ, you're not wrong. We have two men who have become really confident in their status before Christ. And consider maybe where your heart would go. Of all those who followed Jesus, there were 12 set apart. They'd been with him since the beginning. And among the 12, there was the three, Peter, James, and John. They'd seen things that no one else had seen. They'd seen when Jairus' daughter was raised from there, they were there in the room. Jesus brought them into that moment. When they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus' glory was seen and he spoke face to face with Moses and Elijah, guess who was there? Peter, James, and John. Consider what that might do in your heart. If of all the followers of Christ, you weren't only part of the 12, you're part of the three. And you know, you believe that he's going to rule and reign. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for them? They go to Jesus and they ask, would you allow us whatever we ask? We shake our heads at them. They've been given the honor and privilege of walking with Christ which should produce humility. And yet we have been called children of God. And we don't live humbly. We may be tempted to think, you may be tempted to think that you deserve God's favor. Or that you've done something to earn it. Maybe even that he owes you more because of your good deeds. That's how our hearts work. We are prone to distorting the truth, and we see that with James and John. Jesus has been so kind to them, yet instead of growing in humility, they've continued to grow in pride. And they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, will you grant us anything we ask? While Jesus knew their motives weren't pure, while he knew they had selfish intentions, he lets them go. So they ask their question. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, before we point out what's wrong about this, let's consider what's right about this. James and John rightly see Jesus as Messiah. They rightly understand that he's going to sit in glory. And they rightly understand that he is before them. They've got some things right. What's obvious is that they don't understand that the path that Jesus has to walk involves suffering. The way to exaltation is the way to the cross. We also see that their hearts are ruled by pride. They have their eyes fixed on themselves and how they will be seen by others. They know Jesus is going to rule and reign, and they wanted to be seated next to him in his glory. Now, you may know the symbolism of right hand and left hand. This was common to them. If a, a teacher or a leader was to sit at a table, if he was at the head, the next person would be on the right, and the next greatest person would be on his left they were walking down the road, it would not be uncommon for a rabbi to have his next teacher next to him on his right and the, the next most important on his left. This was a common way of showing rank and status. And this is what James and John want. 
They want to be great in the kingdom of God. They want to be seen for it. As we think about that, here's the easy thing to do. You can judge James and John for their pride and their ego and their desire for greatness. But if all you see in these verses is their struggles, then you are as short-sighted as they are. Because we are all tempted this way. For the disciples, it was a desire to be great, but pride doesn't always manifest itself this way. Pride shows itself in us in so many ways. Sometimes pride is desiring to be seen, but sometimes pride looks like not wanting to be seen. Pride can look like self-promotion. It can also look like unnecessary self-demotion where we wallow in our pain and we seek attention because of our weakness. Pride is not only found in those who have a high view of self. Pride's found in those who have an overly low view of self that draws attention. Pride is preoccupation with self and it manifests itself in all kinds of ways. For the disciples, they want to be seen as great. They want a position and power. But what we recognize is they don't understand the nature of the kingdom of God and they have hearts motivated by pride. Now, if we just stop here, I want you to consider, remember back in chapter eight when Jesus announced that he was going to suffer and die and Peter questioned him and he rebuked him. He said, get behind me, Satan. What we recognize is Jesus could have right here rebuked James and John and sent them on their way. But instead, he responds differently. He's merciful. He teaches them. And aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't always deal with us as we deserve? We are all guilty of coming to Christ with proud hearts, probably coming to him with selfish motives. Often our prayers are self-centered. We should be thankful for God's patience with us. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus could have harshly rebuked James and John, but he said and says this. James, John, you don't understand what you're asking. How many times must God have said that about my prayers? You don't have a clue what you're asking. You don't understand my plan. You can't see the end from the beginning. You're frustrated by your suffering. No, your suffering is necessary. You want out of this situation? No, that is a situation you must walk through. How often must God have said to us, you do not know what you're asking? Jesus knew their pride. He knew their selfishness, but he responds by telling them, simply, you don't understand. Yes, he is going to be exalted. Yes, he is going to rule and reign, but the path to exaltation goes through the cross. And once again, he goes on to tell them that he has to suffer and die. This time he uses some imagery. He says, you do not know what you're asking. Verse 38, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, you may not be familiar with this imagery, but they they would have been. This is common Old Testament imagery, especially that of the cup. In the Old Testament, when someone is to drink a cup, it can go one of two ways. They could drink the cup of the goodness of God. But most often, to drink the cup of God is to experience or take on the wrath of God. 
You probably remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll get to this in Mark chapter 14. It's the night before the cross. Jesus is praying. He's sorrowful. And he prays to the Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And this wasn't about physical suffering. This wasn't about thorns or spears or nails. Jesus was asking God to remove from him the wrath that he was going to endure for our sins. Of course, Jesus says, yet not my will, but your will be done. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't only suffer physically. He took the wrath of God for our sins. He drank the cup of God's wrath. Now Jesus says to them, will you drink the cup that I drink? And then he uses a different metaphor to say the same thing. Will you be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? You know the word baptism. When we take someone and we put them under the water, we immerse them, we cover them with water. And in the same way, Jesus will be covered or immersed in the wrath of God for us. He will be baptized into death. And he asks them, are you able to drink that cup? Are you able to experience that baptism? And look at their response. We are able. Not only did they not understand what they asked, but they did not understand what lay before Jesus. They confess that they are able. It's a naive confidence. But of course, they could never walk the road that Jesus was about to walk. And while we recognize that they didn't understand the price that Jesus would have to pay, and we shake our heads at their overconfidence, we again are guilty of the same. We've done it. We come too confidently before God, and we stand not because we're aware of his mercy, not because we're aware of his grace, but because we think we are something. We are able. We are able to minister to others. We are able to serve others. We are able to preach. We are able to lead. What are we? We think that somehow we're stronger than we are and we rely on our own strengths, our own abilities. If we're not careful, we end up serving without any reliance on God at all, trying to earn God's favor, not for his glory, but for ours. We see this with James and John. They saw themselves as great they perceive that they deserve to sit in places of honor. And they say outright, whatever we are able, they don't understand. Jesus goes on and he says this, and this is harder to understand as we read through the passage, but let's consider his response. He says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, based on what I've just said, could they actually drink the cup that he was going to drink? No. Could they actually experience the baptism that he was going to experience? No. I think he's telling them two things, one spiritual and one physical. First, we know that the only way we come to God is by being joined to Christ in his death. This is Romans 6 stuff, isn't it? That we will die with him. I think here Jesus is in part telling them that the only hope you have 
is to join with me to enter into my death, to enter into my suffering on your behalf. He also tells them that the only way they will receive anything is to receive that which has been granted by the Father. To sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. Entrance into the kingdom is prepared for those who come through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I think he's telling them you will enter, but it won't be because of your greatness. It won't be because of who you are. It'll be because of my death and my resurrection. But I think he's also pointing them back to what we've seen over and over in chapters 8, 9, and 10. That to follow him is not only to enter into his suffering spiritually, but to suffer on his behalf outwardly. And most of you probably know the stories of the apostles. James and John would both give their lives for the cause of Christ. They wouldn't die the same way Jesus would die, experiencing the wrath of God for, the, for others, but, but they would give their lives. And I think Jesus is here reminding them of the cost of discipleship. They were ready to walk into the kingdom of God and sit down in seats of importance. And Jesus says, no, no, the way you will get into the kingdom of God is through suffering. First through mine, but the road to the kingdom of God is a road of suffering. And we've examined this well over the past month, the cost of discipleship. Those who follow Christ will suffer. Those who follow Christ must die to themselves. In that sense, we have death to experience, right? Right? We must die to ourselves. We must die to our sin. We must count the cost. We must carry the cross. We must lose ourselves for his sake. In our zeal, many of us may come to Christ and have no idea of what's really required. But the repeated message of Jesus is that when we choose to follow him, we should expect to suffer. We should expect sacrifice. The path of faith will be marked by difficulty. Yet the disciples don't see that, even still. They have their eyes set on seats of prominence. And it wasn't only them that were blinded by position and status. Look at verse 41. I think especially of Peter, because it was Peter, James, and John. Where was Peter when this conversation happened? There's only two hands, and so they ditched Peter. But all ten hear about this conversation, and we see that they are angry. Our translation says indignant. Why were they mad? Were they mad because they understood that James and John were asking something they didn't, they shouldn't ask for? No, no. I think they're mad because they wanted the same thing. How dare you try to cut us out? And the reason I believe this is because of what Jesus says next. At this point, he takes all 12. And we have another one of those heart-to-heart conversations between Jesus and his disciples. If we go back to where we started, this is something that Jesus said over and over. They have been slow to learn and quick to forget, but Jesus is merciful and we get the lesson again. This is another message on the greatness of humility. Verse 42, Jesus called to them and said to them, and he gives an example, you know that those who are considered rulers of Gentiles lord it over them, Their great ones exercise authority over them. So what does he do? He points to the the way the world sees greatness. Look at the Gentiles. They they have their rulers, and those rulers exercise, exercise their authority. They're powerful, they have status, and that is the measure of greatness. That's what you've seen. 
Then he says this in verse 43. It shall not be so among you. Hear that, church. It shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. They wanted to be viewed as great. The disciples are jockeying for position, maneuvering for places of power or influence. Yet this isn't the way to greatness in the kingdom of God. It shall not be so among you. I've used this phrase before, and it's helpful to me, maybe it is to you as well, that Jesus comes proclaiming an upside-down kingdom. We've talked about this before, that so often when Jesus says something, it seems upside-down or backwards compared to our way of thinking. In God's economy, those who are great are those who are humble servants. And this is different than the way we see it in the world, isn't it? He told them, you see the way the Gentiles view greatness, the way they vie for power and position. And for us, we are taught this from the time we are young, that we should focus on ourselves and climb to the top. Value position, value status, value recognition. But Jesus comes and he redefines it all. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom from our vantage point. The way to greatness is the way of service. In order to get higher, we must get lower. But let me say this, and it goes back to something I started earlier. That being humble doesn't mean being passive. It doesn't mean just disappearing. Do you see the way he's defining humility here? It's active. It's servanthood. Sometimes I think we confuse humility with inactivity. We think we're pleasing God because we don't desire a platform. But this is more than the obvious pitfalls of pride. It's a call to go. It's a call to serve. Jesus is not describing withdrawing from people. He's describing going towards people. Be a servant. Be a slave. What does that look like? It means counting others more significant than yourself. Considering the cares and concerns of others and looking for ways to meet their needs. It means having a posture that prefers others over yourself. You could quote it, couldn't you? Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also yours in Christ Jesus. This is how the scriptures define servanthood, and this is what Jesus is calling his disciples to. The way the kingdom of God will be built will be when the people of God humble themselves and serve. Taking the gospel to those who need it. Preferring others above ourselves. I've always liked the definition of humility that says, it's not that we think less of ourselves, but we think of ourselves less. It's not about thinking less of yourself, but it is about thinking about yourself less. If you think I did not practice that, you are wrong. 
Some of us may think of ourselves too highly. Maybe you do need to think of yourself less or less of yourself. <laughs> Overconfident. But we all need to think of ourselves less. We need to think of others more. It doesn't mean becoming passive or weak. Jesus is redefining things for us. Jesus isn't calling us to fearful people pleasing. Have you ever thought of servanthood that way? Just pleasing them, whatever they want. No, it's not about that. It's not serving out of fear or guilt. It's about serving out of joy. It's not serving out of cowardice or coercion. It's about serving out of courage and desire. And of course, the best example we have of this is Christ. And that's what he points to here himself. One thing that James and John got right is that they knew that Jesus was the greatest. They put themselves rightly behind him. He now points to himself and he says this, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. He had every right, didn't he? To come and to demand from the time his feet hit the ground that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. But he did not come the first time to be served, but rather to serve. And his means of service was that he gave his life as a ransom. This verse explains Christmas. He came. This verse describes Easter. He died. It tells us why he died. He died as a ransom. And this is the gospel, that we had a debt that we could not pay. Because of our sin, we had a debt before God that we could never satisfy. And so Jesus did what we could not. He gave his life. He bore the wrath of God that we deserve. He gave his life as a ransom. He bought us. He bought you at the price of his blood. So Paul says in Timothy, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There was a debt that needed to be paid and Jesus paid the debt. I want to read for you from 1 Peter and just listen and consider what Jesus, God Almighty, Creator, did for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Knowing this, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus came to serve. He gave his life. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. How far? Even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came as the ultimate servant. And now Paul says he's been exalted to the highest place. And the call for us is the same. Serve. And he will exalt you in due time. 
Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And so we go back to where we started and recognize this. We have heard this before. We are slow to learn and quick to forget. As I prepared this message, I recognize that you know the example of Christ. You could quote Philippians 2. You know that you're called to humble service. Yet how many of us are still judging our work for Christ on the wrong standards? How many of us think we need influence or platform in order to make a difference for Christ? Or maybe you think you are less in the kingdom of God because you're not a great leader or a prominent teacher or because you'll never have a crowd. Brothers and sisters, we must stop thinking of greatness through the lens of the world. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Serve those around you. Care for their interest more than your own. Humble yourself enough to share with them the gospel. In church, let me just speak really specifically for us as a mo- for a moment. We may hear this, and it sounds good in theory, but we could walk out and do nothing with it. And maybe you're saying, I don't even know where to start. Well, can I tell you? There are people around here. There are people as a part of this body who need to be served by you. How well are you doing at serving your brothers and sisters in this local body? How often are you going out of your way to show care and concern for anyone outside of your own house? I think we could all do better. How often do you pick up the phone or send an email or check on a brother and sister? This year has exposed weakness. I think many of us have become comfortable with separation and isolation. We are more and more comfortable with being disconnected. More and more comfortable with simply looking after our own interests. And we wouldn't say it out loud. We may, it may not even occur to us that we're doing it. But do you see how this could be a subtle form of pride? Where we become so self-focused and at first unintentionally forgotten about those around us who need us. Those who will be great must be servants of all. And we follow a God who left the comfort of heaven and came to live among us in order to serve us. A God who willingly gave his life for our salvation. And we are called to follow his example. To go next door. To go across the street. To go to the cubicle or the office down the hall. To speak of Christ. To love as he loved. To give as he has given. To serve as he has served. What's your plan for this week? Maybe you have a plan this week to serve others well. Or maybe this week you have nothing planned but with that which serves yourself. And I know you're busy. You've got families to care for. You have jobs to fulfill. Things that God has called you to that you must not neglect. But as a part of that, we must not forget that there are others who need us. And there are others who need Christ. And we've been sent to them. So perhaps this afternoon you need to set aside some time to make a plan. How will you serve others this week?
in the name of Christ. Maybe you would serve them by sharing the gospel with them. Maybe you would serve them by inviting them to come and join us on Friday evening or next Sunday morning. Maybe you would serve them by meeting a physical need, by showing the love of Christ to them in a tangible way. May we be a church and a people that are marked by humility. May we be a people who are exalted because of our faithful hearts of service. Not for our own glory, but for the glory of the one who has already given himself for us.